You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, rainy Thursday at Camp Meeting. Thank you that we can be together in this place for this purpose. And Lord, as we discuss and think about the themes of the sanctuary and Christ's work for our redemption, give us attentive minds and soften our hearts where you know we need to be molded more like Jesus. So bless us today, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Well, you're all spread out. Like, I feel like there's 12 people, but you're like everywhere. So I'm going to have to try to keep my eye on you. It's good to be at Michigan camp meeting. I just find excuses to come back here. And uh, this time it was to help with this Emmanuel class that Mark and Cameron needed no help with. Um, but hey, anything I can do just so I can come and be with my brothers and sisters in Michigan who are not from Michigan, I'll do it. Because from what I hear, not many of you are from Michigan. So here's what they tell me. They tell me that when I start praying, then everything is on the record. They start filming me and streaming me somewhere. You know, there's like three people on Facebook who are going to be watching. And I am just wondering, is there anything that I need to deal with now before we go on the record? Because if not, I'll go ahead and get started. Okay, don't throw anything, you know, don't throw any curveballs midway or else, uh, or else I may have to have him stop and that would be embarrassing. But I'm glad you're all here. You're camp meeting people and that's my kind of people. Um, we've been coming to camp meetings since, boy, I'm sorry, where's my mother? She went to all my brother's meetings. I'm going to have to try and get past the hurt to, to talk to you today. This is going to be true. Anyway, my mother is here, and I was going to ask her how long we've been coming to camp meeting up here. She said 18 years. Okay, so we've been coming to Michigan camp since before I was pastoring up here, and that was a while ago. So, yeah, 18 years coming up to camp meeting. And before that, we went to Ohio camp meeting back when they had Ohio camp meeting. And they had a good Ohio camp meeting for a while. But um, there's just something different about camp meeting people. They're, they're the committed people. The people who are hungry, they really want to know. They're not perfect, but they want to know the truth. And so it's always exciting to talk to people at camp meeting, and especially at seminar time. So I'm excited to be with you today. We're going to talk about the sanctuary. And then tomorrow, we're going to talk about Christian standards, which I don't know how excited you are about that, but it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about Christian standards, the purpose of Christian standards, and some of the dicey, you know, does it really say that in the Bible kind of stuff, and we're going we're gonna to dive deep into it. So today we're going to get into the sanctuary, and before we do, here we go, here's your signal, we're going to pray. So let's bow our heads and ask God's blessing on our study together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the privilege of being able to study together and be here together at camp meeting. Even the rain, Lord, is a blessing today as we're protected under this shelter and uh, we're reminded of the reign of the Holy Spirit that we so desperately need in order to understand your word and have power to live according to your will. So please bless us here with your presence, Lord. We love you. We thank you for all that you have done in our lives. And we want to grow through 
this experience at camp meeting. So bless us now with your abiding presence, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to talk about the sanctuary. Let me ask you a question. Is the subject of the sanctuary important? By the way, um, I'm, I know I'm late to the party. I just got here yesterday, but I understand we're going through the S's, right? Sabbath, second coming, you did state of the dead. No, there was four of them, wasn't there? A spirit of prophecy, that's right. So those are some pretty important things. Well, sanctuary is one of them. Why is sanctuary in there? Why is the subject of the sanctuary important, or is it? I'm just wondering if, if you have any insight on that. I think one thing that, as Seventh-day Adventists, we need to recognize is that this is a unique doctrine. You were going to say it. Okay, well then we'll count it. We'll count it. The, the sanctuary is unlike the Sabbath, and unlike the state of the dead, it is a doctrine that we alone hold in the way that we hold it. Okay? So I'm not just talking about the understanding that there was an Old Testament sanctuary that was um, symbolic of, you know, and filled with typology and that type of thing. But I'm talking about the unique way in which the Seventh-day Adventist Church understands the sanctuary, which is really our, you know, when we talk about the sanctuary, we're talking about our unique understanding of the sanctuary. So that's a big point. Uh, another big point that I didn't hear mentioned is that the sanctuary is present truth. Okay, what I mean by that, the sanctuary is amongst the most relevant of our doctrines. Okay, uh, perhaps more than most any other, it points to a present work, a present situation, what Christ is doing now. So it's very much a, um, a present truth doctrine. And let me give you a reason why uh, that's true. Um, Revelation chapter 14. Do you have your Bibles? Go to Revelation 14, and I know you don't need to go there for this, but just to get your fingers warmed up, go ahead and go to Revelation 14. And somebody tell me, what it says in Revelation 14, 6, and 7. Is this present truth? Revelation 14, 6, and 7? Would you call it present truth? Um, and, and what do we refer to this, by the way, as? Okay, the first angel of the three angels' messages, right? So this is that present truth message that Seventh-day Adventists believe is our message to give to the world. And right there, in the very beginning, first thing that is said, the first angel, in verse 7, is fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Where does this angel draw from to be able to say that the hour of His judgment has come? The 2300-day prophecy, and what is the 23... I'm, I'm just, this is quiz time, but we've not gone over anything, over anything yet, but we will. But the 2300-day prophecy is a prophecy that points to an event. What's that event? Does anybody remember? Cleansing of the sanctuary, Right? So when we talk about the doctrine of the sanctuary, more than anything, we're talking about present truth. We're talking about the three angels' messages. We're talking about this first angel that reveals that the hour of judgment has come, and for this reason, it's time to get ready, get ready, get ready. It's an urgency that is tied to the doctrine of the sanctuary. So this is the idea of the sanctuary's present relevance that makes it so important. Let me read a statement to you uh, from a book called Early Writings. And as the title indicates, these are early writings of Ellen White. 
She says this, There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. I have seen the danger, she says, of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth. She says, I've seen the danger of running off from the important points of present truth. I don't have it here in this quote, but she goes on to talk about how there are many wonderful truths in the Bible. But what we need now is present truth. The way that I usually try to describe this is with Noah. You know, if Noah was preaching and behind him there are his helpers who are building this gigantic boat on dry land where there's never been rain, and Noah gets out with an important message and he says, Today we will begin a ten-part series on the family. The stirring in the heart would be, okay, that's interesting, but what about the boat, right? Like, like, tell me about the boat. What in the world is going on? What's the urgency here? Seventh-day Adventists believe all of the Bible, and there are wonderful truths, and we should read it from Genesis to Revelation, but when it comes to the focal point, the emphasis of our messages, those messages should be present truth. They should be truth that is specifically relevant to people today. And we believe that the doctrine of the sanctuary is as relevant as any and more relevant than most. Now I'm going to finish reading what she says. She says, I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth. But such subjects as the sanctuary, in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus, these I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? What does it mean to dwell, by the way? You spend time on it. You focus on it. You dig deeply into it. You repeat it and repeat it. You dwell on it. And this statement, did it, did it say that the sanctuary is something that we should dwell on? Not exactly. It did, but what did it say? The sanctuary what? In connection with the 2300 days. This is very important. Because when we say the sanctuary is present truth, we do not mean the spiritual significance of the tabernacle tent stakes. That's not what we're talking about. Yes, there are some basics, and we'll do a little bit of this, of understanding the sanctuary that are important to be able to understand the present-day connection and the meaning of the sanctuary for our day. But the part that we dwell on is the part that brings urgency to our message. The sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. That means the cleansing of the sanctuary. That's the part that is most critical and important to us. Because, by the way, Jesus is working today in cleansing the sanctuary. So because of that, that's where our focus is, because we are focused on Jesus. And there are some people who are still looking back at the historical Jesus, and they're not taking any time to focus on the living Jesus and what he's doing today. They're not in tune with the meaning of the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. Quick question. How many of you 
if somebody walked in off the street today could explain to them from the Bible that the 2300 days culminate in 1844, don't raise your hands. I just want you to think about your answer to the question. Now, I heard, I don't know, you know, you hear different stories sometimes and you never know what's truth or not. I remember hearing one guy who was a missionary who said that, you know, when he was challenged by some armed guards or whatever, and they, they knew Adventists and he claimed he was an Adventist and it was his reason for uh, why he was where he was at that time, that they questioned him on the 2300 days to see if he was really an Adventist. You know, I wonder if we went through Michigan camp meeting and we questioned everybody on the 2300 days to see if they were really an Adventist. Well, that's why you're here in the seminar, right? So you can know how to do it. But I'm not going to focus just on that, but I do want to do that. I want to walk through the Bible and show why we believe the 2300 days point to a present-day judgment. Like, I, I, want to, I want us to do that together. We only have a short time to do that, so there's some things that we're going to kind of zip through fairly quickly and other things that we'll take more time on. Um, I'm told that I have from 2.15, this is what Mark tells me, but I don't pay much attention to him usually, 2.15 to 3, and then I'm supposed to take a 10-minute break. Okay, so let's, let's dive in um, and talk a little more on the, on the foundational part before we dive into some of the end-time relevance, okay? Because we need to have certain foundation before we can get to the end-time relevance. Let me just ask this question, um, and I'm going to tell you, I gave you handouts, right? And these are Bible study uh, guides that you can actually use to walk people through these, these doctrines. Um, Mark told me I didn't have to be tied to the Bible study guides. And like I said, I, I listen to Mark when he tells me things. So I'm not going to be totally stuck to the Bible study guides, but I do kind of follow through in a you know, fairly systematic way. So we're going to start with 5b, okay, what the Bible really says about the sanctuary service. Like I said, I'm not going to go like lockstep, but I am going to follow you know, the basic topic of each of these studies, starting with this one, 5b. So what was the purpose of the sanctuary? What was the purpose of the sanctuary? Okay, uh, can you give me a text for that? Exodus 25.8, right? Exodus 25.8. Where is that on your study guide? It's the first question, right? Okay, and what is it that Exodus 25.8 says? Let's look there. This is foundational. We need to get a couple of foundational texts. A lot of these I'll move quickly through so that we have time to make sure we cover all the elements because we have a lot of different elements of the sanctuary we're going to cover. But let's talk about Exodus 25.8 to get the foundation. God says here in verse 8, you notice in verse 1 it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... So verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell among them. Now somebody tell me why the Bible study has John chapter 1 and verse 14 next to Exodus 25.8. Anybody have any idea? You can even open up and look at it if you want a reference. Okay, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word there really is tabernacled, right? So what's that talking about? What's that verse talking about in John chapter 1? Jesus becoming human. Well, when we say Jesus becoming human, we are talking about Jesus veiling what? His divinity. So Jesus, the divine God, Son of God, 
veiled his divinity in humanity so that he could dwell with people and so that he could interact and walk and talk and 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 not you know have the glory of god bring about bad consequences for sinful mortals so this is the greater fulfillment if you will of that symbolic imagery that we learn about when we talk about the sanctuary and god dwelling but ultimately, they both have that same purpose, that God wanted to be where we were. This is a central piece to the sanctuary, and it needs to be kept in mind. The idea of the sanctuary is that God wants to be close to his people. That's the underlying concept of the sanctuary. When you start talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary, and you're talking about you know, cleansing from sin and those types of things as well, it's all about reconciling man to God so that God can be close to his people. And that really is the heart of the sanctuary, is the love of God for his people and the desire of God to be among his people. Okay, now another aspect of the sanctuary that's kind of critical. The sanctuary and its services were more than face value, were they not? What do we know about that? Let's, let's look at another text. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is in the New Testament, and it's very close to Revelation, but just several little books of the Bible to the left. You'll come to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is all about the sanctuary, and especially the high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we read this in verse 9, speaking about the services of the Old Testament sanctuary. It says, it was what? Symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, etc. We could spend a lot of time breaking down the sanctuary in this chapter and the previous one, but I just wanted to point out for now this idea, this word in the scripture that it was symbolic. It's important that we understand that the sanctuary was symbolic. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to find symbolism in everything. And I want to just make this point because there are some people who strain to try to find symbolism in every little element that could be in the sanctuary. And this has gotten people into trouble. I was pastoring here in Michigan and there was somebody who wanted to know what the significance was that there were four horns on the altar. And she studied and she looked and she, you know, asked around and nobody could give her a clear answer on why there were four horns on the altar. So she got on the internet and started Googling around, and she found someone who was proposing an idea as to why there were four horns on the altar, and they were quoting from Ellen White. So, oh, fantastic, it's an Adventist. And she starts reading, and before long, we discover that they were Branch Davidians, who, of course, Branch Davidians came from the Davidians, who were the shepherd's rod, and the shepherd's rod came from people who were at one point Adventist. But they're not Adventists, <laughs> and nowhere close. But because of her curiosity to find what everything, and you know what the, the teaching was, what the four horns on the altar were? The four members of the Godhead. Uh-huh, four members of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Ghost. And one was a son and the other was a daughter. Like, it was a whole thing. Crazy stuff. But 
had to have an answer for every little element, as if every little element had an answer. You know, I've got a, you know, a theory on why there were four horns on the altar, because it was square, right? I mean, you don't have to find spiritual significance in absolutely everything, especially when the Bible itself is not pointing you to a spiritual significance. And that's one of the key areas, I mean, I wish we could do a whole thing on hermeneutics, on the interpretation of the Bible, but the Bible interprets itself, and we need to be very careful not to draw our own allegory about what the Bible is saying, rather than letting the Bible tell us, when it's got symbolic imagery, what those symbols mean. So that would have helped, but anyway, this person ended up leaving the church, by the way, and and multiple members left with her, just so you know. Very... uh, very bright person. So we need to be careful when we're talking about the sanctuary. I, I mean, I could give you stories. I had another uh, trip with a guy out west to California, and he wanted to go and stay on this farm and get into shape with some, you know, very conservative Seventh-day Adventist who, you know, was you know, very strict in health reform, and he thought he needed to go there because he needed somebody to hold him accountable, and so we go out there and we, we dropped him off and we go into the house and the, the guy's got this board and he starts showing us all the parts of the human body on the sanctuary. Have you ever seen this before? Okay, you know, like the, the brain is the, you know, the most holy place. And, you know. Anyway, and, and it was detailed. Like it wasn't just like simple, it was, it was broken down or whatever. Fortunately, we started to leave and we had gone way out of the way to drop this guy off. He's like, I can't stay here. I forgot how oppressive it was. I got to get out of here. <laughs> so we took him and, you know, spared him. But there are a lot of people who love to get into allegory. It's just so exciting to come up with your own ideas. Uh, but it's not very safe when it comes to scriptural interpretation. And because the sanctuary is symbolic, it tends to be at the heart of a lot of these types of teachings. The sanctuary does. So just a word to the wise. Okay, let's talk for a minute about some of the key elements of the sanctuary. I know I'm talking to primarily Seventh-day Adventists here, um, so I'm going to not, you know, be too elementary. I'm just going to ask for your help. Tell me what some of the key elements of the sanctuary are in terms of things that reveal to us, through the sanctuary and its symbolism, the plan of salvation. Tell me some of the key elements. Sacrifice, okay? And the sacrifice was, uh, if, if you read through, you know, the books of Moses, you'll find that what was sacrificed, there were multiple different things that could be sacrificed, right? But the, but the one representative animal that we often talk about and that Revelation talks about and what have you is what? A lamb. Okay, and this lamb had to be spotless. Okay, why? Because... It had to be sinless. It represented being sinless. And why? It represented Jesus. Why did Jesus have to be sinless? Okay, because if he was not sinless, he could not save us. He'd only die for himself. You understand what I'm saying? The wages of sin is death. He would be paying his own debt and not the debt of the whole world. By the way, I remember when I was early on in my experience, I I always wondered to myself, how is it that one man could die and that could pay the debt for all these people. 
Like, how is that just? Because, you know, we talk a lot about the justice of God and it needs to be satisfied and all that kind of thing. Well, how is that just? I, I didn't understand it. And then I was reading, uh, there's a book called 7A. Has anybody ever heard of a book called 7A? It's, it's, the, it's the volume connected with the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary that has all the Ellen White comments from the commentary in one volume. And in the back of it, it has uh, appendices, and one of them is on the atonement. The whole thing is just all these statements from Ellen White on the atonement. Powerful. And I was reading through all these statements on the atonement, and I came across this statement that said that, and I this is not an exact quote, forgive me, I didn't have this in my mind to share, but since we're on this topic, it said that the, the law demanded, because it had been broken, the broken law demanded uh, the sufferings of a man, but Christ gave the sufferings of God. And then it struck me, and there were some other statements you had in there too, such as, did you know that the law is of greater value than the angels? I remember reading that and thinking, how could the rules be of more value than his creatures? Well, the reason is because the principles of the law are what are needed for the entire universe to have peace and happiness. So those principles are greater than his creation. And I also remembered reading that the angels actually wanted, when they learned that Jesus, the Son of God, was going to give his life, the angels, oh, let me go. And Jesus stepped in and said what? Anybody remember that from early writings? So, so this, is, this was where my confusion was early on. An angel, a sinless angel, could maybe pay the debt for one of us, but ultimately... That idea that the law demanded the sufferings of a man, but Christ gave the sufferings of a God, what you see is the difference between the life giver and everyone else is amenable to the law. Even the angels are dependent upon God for life. They are, they are ultimately indebted to God to, to do as he asks. And, and so ultimately you're talking about value here. Like, Think of it this way. Which is more valuable? 200 computers or the one man who created them? You know, you, you get rid of the man and you're left with 200 computers that are going to go bad in two and a half years, roughly. <laughs> you get rid of the 200 computers and what? Make more. It's infinitely more valuable, the creator, than the created. Infinitely. This is why when people struggle with the power of the devil, they're like, oh, the devil's so strong, whatever. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, the difference between the creation and the creator is higher than the heavens are, you know, than the earth. I mean, it's this total night and day that we're talking about here. And so what you see in the sacrifice of Christ as the lamb is the creator giving his life. His life is worth more than all of creation. That's why she writes that justice, when it saw the sacrifice that was made, she, she uses this, you know, metaphoric language. She says, justice came down from his exalted throne and bowing at the cross said, it is enough. I mean, it is plenty, you know. God, the creator, gave his life. I mean, it's just a powerful, and this is revealed 
to us through the sinless lamb in the sanctuary. That's the power of that sacrificial offering. Had to be sinless and had to be Christ. Could not have been a created being. Okay, so now let's talk about some other elements, and we'll go through this quickly. Other than the sacrifice, which is the key focal element of the early part of the service, what other things do we have that we need to be aware of? Okay, think about the elements of the sanctuary itself. Okay, you've got the two apartments, the holy place and the most holy place, okay, and these are signifying different phases in God's plan of salvation, but they're also signifying uh, different functions in God's plan of salvation, okay? And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, other elements. Yes? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's interesting that he said it the way that he did. It's also called the Ark of the Testimony, right? Um, and I could give you some text on that. If, you wanna, if, you're, if you're a note taker, Ark of the Testimony, Exodus 25, 22, 31, 7, 40, verse 5, and 40, verse 21. There are four places where you refer specifically to the Ark of the Testimony. But let me give you another one. How about the Tabernacle of the Testimony? Exodus 38, 21, Numbers 1, verses 50 and 53. Why is it called the Tabernacle of the Testimony? What does that tell you when it says the Tabernacle of the Testimony? What, what does that convey to us? That the testimony is contained within, but there are a lot of things that are contained within, right? So, so specifically, what is it telling us? If it calls it the Ark of the Testimony, then it's identifying the Ark. The importance of the Ark is the testimony. Isn't it interesting? It calls it the Tabernacle of the Testimony. I mean, why doesn't it call it the Tabernacle of the Table of Showbread? Or the Tabernacle of the lampstand. He calls it the tabernacle. The whole tabernacle is identified by the testimony. There's a centrality in the sanctuary to the law of God, enshrined in the most holy place of the sanctuary is the testimony. And that testimony, we understand, is an expression of what? of who God is. It's an expression of God. It's the principles of eternity, the principles of the universe, the principles of heaven. Here you have the principles of God himself enshrined in the tabernacle. And this is critical because it's right there in the middle of the most holy place, which as we will get into a little bit more, also finds its way into sort of a timeline when you look at the sanctuary. Because the most holy place represents a second and final phase of Jesus' ministry as high priest. And so what we understand then is at the end of time, there will be this special focus on the testimony. I mean, it's, it's, it's screaming that to us from the sanctuary. The importance of the testimony, especially at the end of time. By the way, is there anything else in the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament sanctuary? Not in the sanctuary itself, that is true, but in the ark. There was Aaron's rod that budded, and what else? The jar of manna. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but what you see right in, in the heart of the most holy place are three elements that are being challenged at the end of time. 
And these three elements are elements of authority. What was that word I said? Authority. The Ten Commandments, what's being challenged in regard to that? The law of God. And specifically, we could speak of the Sabbath, right? So the authority of the law of God. Oh, the law is, you know, has been done away with. You know, there's all of those challenges against the authority of the law of God. It's permanence. It's perpetuity. And then you have also in the ark the, uh, the jar of manna. What is manna? When, when, we, when we look in, yes, in the Bible. The manna represents the word, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. So what else is being challenged authority-wise at the end of time? The Bible. The whole Bible is being challenged. And it's, I mean, it's amazing to me if you look at modern-day Christian biblical scholars, the vast majority of them no longer believe in the reliability of Scripture. You know that. Like, I'm not saying that there aren't many, many who do, but the vast majority of biblical theological scholars believe that the Bible was culturally conditioned and that it has inspired elements in it, but that it's not all inspired. So when that happens, which parts do you think are inspired? The parts that agree with my life. <laughs> Those are the parts that are inspired. And that's what happens. We become the authority, right? So the authority of the Word of God is being challenged. And finally, and I'm ready to quit right after this and take a break, is the Aaron's rod that budded, right? And what did that represent? Do you remember the story? This is where Aaron's authority as the priest was being challenged. And God revealed that the priesthood through Aaron was to have a measure of authority, that they were doing his bidding. And I would venture to say that we have some issues at the end of time with people who want to do away with any organization in the church, that there is no authority in church leadership. Oh, that's all hierarchy. That's from the Catholics. And so we have this idea that, you know, there's, there's no respect for the world church in session. There's no respect for the leaders of God's church because that's Catholic to think that way. This is not Catholic. It's New Testament. And we're not talking, I mean, obviously, every true leader is a servant. Okay? And we understand that ultimately the leaders in God's church are, they have delegated authority from the world, from the people. But still, when they are called by God and recognized by the church, there's got to be, in order for the organization to function, a measure of authority and recognition of that. And this also, I believe, is challenged in the last days. And it's fascinating. All three of those elements are encompassed in the most holy place, which is especially relevant to the days in which we are living. These are just some of the elements. We'll pick up right here where we left off because uh, I have a lot more to say about that. And we'll make sure that you can share the 2300 days with someone before we leave today. So let's have a short prayer and then we'll take a 10-minute break. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the sanctuary. This message is relevant, and so often we get caught up in certain aspects of it that maybe aren't relevant, but we want to know, Lord, how we can see Jesus. 
and what He is doing in our lives and how He is leading our church and this message in our day through the sanctuary. So bless us as we continue to study this afternoon in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.